Well, boy, in the book of Titus, Paul has laid it out for young Titus how to set the church in order, given him some real clear guidelines, like in the book of Timothy, some things that would help out uh, pieces of information until he comes and gives a more thorough knowledge. But yet we know it's the Lord who gave us the information, not just for the church in Crete here, but for all the churches. And I'm sure there are some particular pieces of information that would have been helpful as well uh, there in um, Crete, but yet it wouldn't have applied to all churches. So there the Lord, uh, again, divinely orchestrated it. So it's just the right amount of information that would apply to all churches. And some things are pretty heavy pieces of information. And so there at the end of chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So Paul tells Timothy, like Timid Titus, like he told Timid Timothy, to get in there, to don't back down, to don't take no for an answer. And I understand you can be in some pretty intimidating situations. I understand you're a young man, and these guys are maybe twice your age and have twice the experience, and, and they're telling you according to their life's experience, but you tell them, Thus saith the Lord. There, if you flip back just a page to the left, you come to 2 Timothy. And there in chapter 4, he told Timothy something very similar, starting in verse 1. Again, sort of in a heavy way. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So he sort of brings Timothy into the final courtroom of the final judgment and says, Whoa, as you're standing there, have you preached the word? Preach it now, so you, when you stand before God, you're not blamed. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And then he ends that by uh, telling him in verse 5, But be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So he tells them there that he also is going to have to rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and and patience and and uh, sometimes to be a leader in the church you've got to have some pretty thick skin you've got to really be prepared to uh, get heavy if you would with certain individuals and uh, although they may not agree over in Jeremiah chapter 1 Jeremiah when he heard what the Lord wanted to do through him uh, he said Lord I'm but a youth you know I cannot speak to this multitude of people. And the Lord said to him, Do not say, I am a youth, there in verse 7. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and wherever I command you, and you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces. And then he goes on and tells them, there in verse 10, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, and to build up and to plant. So, your ministry is to get in there and to start ripping plants out and start pulling buildings down and, and then also to build back up as well. But the job of the pastor is not just to encourage, but sometimes to rebuke. Sometimes to not just speak the truth, but sometimes to get in their face and tell them to repent. And this is your job as well. And, and there, Jeremiah didn't like this. And there in Jeremiah 1.17, he says, Therefore, prepare yourself and arise. So get it in your thinking. This is your ministry, Jeremiah. And I speak to them all that I command you. Make sure you say everything I tell you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you 
before them. Pretty heavy. God says, if you chicken out, (laughs) I'm going to make you look like a chicken in front of them. If you get dismayed, I'm going to dismay you. But prepare yourself and don't be dismayed before them. Be ready to get in there and fight that good fight of faith. So a heavy word. And then after you've told them, he says here in chapter 3 in the book of Titus, to them remind them. So as a pastor, sometimes we have to do the work of an evangelist. The work of an evangelist is to debate with people at times, to wrestle with people at times, to convince people, to try to change their thinking, to come to the truth. And pastors have to do that. Typically, it's not the nature of a pastor to be a debater. He's more of a shepherd, not not the... Uh, type of personality that an evangelist typically has. But nevertheless, do that work. But the pastor has no problem reminding them. And that's the, the job of the pastor, is not to come up with something new, or not to come up with something eloquent, or not to come up with something that everybody goes, whoa, I've never thought of that. That was an incredible insight. The pastor, you know, have you ever seen shepherds, you know? Uh, I was raised up in a agriculture society, and and I often would see shepherds, you know, and boy, I I always thought, that'd be tough. I mean, these guys just sort of got to put their brain on neutral, and and they get up in the morning, they hang out with the sheep all day, and they take them out to pasture, and they take them to water, and then they, end of the day, take them back in uh, to the corral, and they're just sort of hanging out all day. And to a degree, that is the the job of a, a pastor, in that they don't mind saying the same thing again and again and again. I, I have no problem. People have asked, man, Brian, isn't it hard to teach a Saturday night and three, Sundays, three times Sunday morning? And, and sometimes I'll take what I'm teaching and even te- take it somewhere else, to the prison or uh, to the juvenile hall or, or different places. No, I, I don't mind saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, it doesn't bother me at all. And... Uh, I know Ray Comfort, who's an evangelist, he said he pastored for a year and it was the worst 10 years of his life. And because it just wasn't his calling. It's a difficult thing if you don't have those giftings. But to remind them, Paul had this in his heart in Romans 15. He says, and I say this to you as I remind you. And in Philippians 3, he says, for me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but to you it is safe. And in 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to stir up. And he goes on. Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. For this reason I am not negligent to remind you always of these things. To stir you up by way of reminding you. You are always have a reminder of these things after my decease or my departure. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 15. And also in 2 Peter he says... I write these things to you in the second epistles, which I can stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. And so uh, if, if the pastor's saying sort of the same things on a pretty regular basis, year in and year out, that's a good thing. Because that is the pastor's job, to keep reminding us. How many times have you known a spiritual truth, and it was locked in there, and then you sort of forgot it? And years later... Uh, you're going through some difficult times, you're seeking out answers, and you realize, man, I once knew that really, really well. How did I forget that? Well, that's because the pastor's job is to keep bringing those things back to remembrance. 
In particular, what does he remind them over and over again? To be subjective or be in submission to rulers and those in authority. To obey them. To be ready for every good work. So they're not in jail or got a court case coming up or, you know, got a warrant out for their arrest. They're free to do the work of the ministry. Remember that the people on the island of Crete were pretty much a wild and crazy people. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 12 there? He says, um, one of them... Uh, a prophet of their own says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> Therefore, rebuke them sharply. So their nature wasn't to be submissive. Uh, as their culture was, they were evil people. They were gluttons. They were lazy. They were rebellious group of people. And, and this is something that they had to learn how to not be anymore and how to start learning to be. Boy, that's the toughest way to live. When people come to premarital counseling, they say, boy, go through the booklets we give you, read the books we give you, listen, because, you know, once you get in marriage, to take 10 steps backwards, to take one step forward, that can get old in a hurry, and that can really get tough. To go into marriage and make continual mistakes over the first year, and then to spend the next five years undoing all the damage you did in the first year, on the seventh year, hopefully, to get back to start taking uh, steps in the positive. It, it can be a difficult thing, and sometimes a society can really curse a people because they've, it sort of has taught us ungodly attributes. And every culture uh, is guilty of this in one way, shape, or form. And uh, their culture, uh, in particular, is one that did not yield itself to authorities. The Bible is very clear on this. In Romans 13, he says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So whether it's the president, the governor, the mayor, the chief of the police, or the guy who's a rookie police who just started last week, or the guy out here in the parking lot trying to tell you where to park, <laughs> every one of those authorities are from God. And God has put them there to help direct and to guide your life. Now, again, it's a pretty heavy thing when you realize the leaders of Paul's day. A matter of fact, Paul would later be taken to Rome and would later be tried in front of a guy by the name of Nero. Nero was a crazy dude. He used to dip Christians in kerosene, impel them on sticks, and set them on fire throughout his garden area so he could just ride his chariot around at nighttime. I mean, I, I could go into quite detail. This guy was crazy. But yet, Paul said, every authority, directly or indirectly, God has at least allowed it to be there. And so we're talking about a government that was very oppressive to Christianity. Yet, Paul tells them in Rome, he tells the church here at Crete, he tells them throughout the Bible, you know what? Still the Lord's allowed them to be in place. Submit unto them. 
Um, in 1 Timothy, you can turn to the left there a couple of pages, it says in, in chapter 2, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, and accessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all in authority, that we may lead a quiet and a peaceful life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And so we need to not just take a passive role in this, but we need to take an active role in this. So not just a, a defensive position of don't tick them off, but we need to take an offensive position of praying for them. And we need to pursue for their salvation. And this is a part of us being free as Christians to worship as we will. And so if we are praying for those in authority, God promises us a quieter, peacefuler life through that. Well, how does that work? I don't know. I could speculate, but I won't. But this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, that we would have such a heart of prayer for all those in authority. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to kings as supreme or governors or to those who sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, and obey your pastor. It, you need to add that in there. Verse 17. <laughs> but here it plainly tells us that we need to have this heart of submission towards those in civil authority. Uh, back in Romans 13 in particular, it even says, talks about paying your taxes and, and so forth. Not to grumble about it, but to realize this is all a part of God's plan. When you look through the Bible, it is rather amazing as you see God using those authorities. In Proverbs it says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it any which way he chooses, like the turning of a river. God is the ultimate authority. And if God wants to come down and, and use those authorities, uh, you can see as he utilized Pharaoh in resisting God so he might show his uh, glory manifest in miracles. Or God gives the Roman Caesar a crazy idea to make everybody go back to their city of birth, their city of origin. Maybe you've never been born there, but, but yet your ancestors are from there. And for Joseph, he was of the tribe of Judah, and, and David's city was the city of Bethlehem. And so here he is, even though his wife is nine months pregnant, or actually his supposed wife, uh, is nine months pregnant. I'm sure they went to the authorities saying, hey, can you know, I send my brother and him you know, write my name down and pay for me because my wife here is... Nope, no, no excuses. Get to Bethlehem. And so here's Mary, uh, very, very, very pregnant. And she's having to make this very difficult journey all the way to Bethlehem. And there, away from family, away from uh, her home, away from very convenient circumstances, she had this baby in a barn. But you know what? It was the will of the Lord. Even those authorities were brutal and stupid and ridiculous and it didn't make any logical sense. God was still in the midst of using those authorities 
that the scripture might be fulfilled, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The only exception to this is if the authorities out and out ask you to disobey God. Remember there where the midwives in Exodus were told by Pharaoh to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. And they disobeyed Pharaoh. And then when he said, why didn't you kill them? They lied. They just said, hey, these women, man, they're strong women. You put them to work. And, you know, they're not like the Egyptian women. When they're ready to give birth, those muscles are so strong. These babies just pop right out. And they've already been delivered before I even get there. They lied. And it says God blessed them. (laughs) And blessed them, gave them houses. Why? Because they chose to fear God rather than man. And there are those exceptions. They brought Peter and the gang in there in Acts chapter 4 and said, didn't we tell you not to preach this name, this guy Jesus anymore? I'm telling you, we're commanding you as your authorities not to preach this guy Jesus any longer. And Peter said, well, the Lord just told me the exact opposite. Go into the world and preach the gospel. So do I obey God or do I obey man? You be the judge. In other words, it's a no-brainer. I'm going to obey God over man. So if the authorities say, everybody turn their Bibles in, well, we won't. And when they come knocking at our door saying, do you have any Bibles there? We'll say, nope. And God will bless us. There are those times where um, you've got to obey God rather than man. We also need to be submissive to those authorities in the church. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you. I hate that translation. Who lead you, spiritually, your spiritual leaders. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So in the same way, God leads the leadership of the church. And God is speaking to them. And often, not often, in some cases, uh, not everybody sees what God is showing to the leadership, just like in the home. The parents see things often that the kids don't. And this is also a test of your heart, whether you'll be submissive to those uh, in authority over you in the church. But then also, we need to have a heart of submission one to another. There's a lot of verses on all these subjects, by the way, and I'm just picking a few of them because we're not in in-depth study here tonight. But when we come back again and have an in-depth study on Titus, I'll go into it more in-depth on this. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we really need to have a heart of submission to one another. That spirit willing to yield and to listen to one another. And and to realize that God has given us to each other. To not just blow somebody off when they're trying to talk to you. And to not just say, well, that's your opinion. I'm not going to even consider it. Stop. And realize, God has put that person in your life. You need to take them seriously. You need to stop and consider what they're saying with a sincere, open heart. Because this could be God himself speaking to you through your brother, through your sister, in the Lord. And then to be ready for every good work. In Titus chapter 3, he's concerned now that they would take too passive of a position. So submit to everybody in authority. That doesn't mean you, you put yourself in neutral and just sort of get blown in whichever way. No, have a submissive heart, but don't be just a passive personality. Now you also need to be ready for every good work. You need to now be on the offense, ready to 
move forward under submission of all authorities, but yet now ready to move forward in that ministry that God's given you. So we're under authority to the civil government, we're under authority to the, the, the church government, if you would, we're under authority one to another, but now start, if, you, if all those lights are green, <laughs> and, and all of those authorities above you see that this is what God is doing, now run forward in that ministry that God's given you. Be on the, on the offense, be ready to take off uh, on the mark, get set, go, be ready now for every good work, not just staying in a passive position. Well, I'm submitted to everybody, and I'm just, you know, sitting here waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. No, that's not, that's not the right heart. You need to be listening to the Lord and moving forward in your ministry, but at the same time, have a submissive heart to those in authority. And then he says in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now you really have to take verse 2 and 3 together because he's saying, understand the world is the world. And don't gripe about them being in the world. They're held captive by Satan, just like you once were. They're living a life after their lust and the, and the sinfulness of their flesh, like you once were. So don't gripe about them. Don't, don't speak evil of them because they also could become Christians and those things could become uh, their B.C. days, before Christ. But far as speaking evil of individuals that are leaders that are bringing people down or, or, or causing harm, no, there are times that we need to speak evil of people. Matter of fact, turn back a page to the left, one page to the left. Look there at 2 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. So here in warning, um, then he goes on to say in verse 15, you also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. So in, in a way of warning or a way of educating, in this case, uh, young Timothy he, he tells him, watch out, be careful, wake up and realize, and he gives a name. So there are definite times to speak against people. I know when President Clinton was trying to push the uh, partial birth abortion, uh, boy, I was definitely down on him and still am for that. That was a wicked thing. And to say we need to go on the offense praying against that, that bill and praying against those things. And, and now on the opposite side, uh, you know, President Bush is trying to change some of those things, trying to really stand in the gap concerning um, the marriage, you know, for uh, homosexual couples to be recognized uh, as a federal law and these kind of things. And we need to pray now, not against him, but for him. And uh, boy, what, what pressure he must be under to compromise in so many areas. Uh, to try to pass some of the laws that are good. He often has to give in to many things that are wicked, uh, as politicians often do. And uh, that's why, you know, I praise God for politicians, because I could never do that. And uh, thus, I'd never get anything passed. Um, but I would be very strong on my convictions. So 
we need to, to realize that the world's the world, and let's just understand that. We don't need to sit around and talk about how wicked the world is. We all understand it's wicked. Okay, next subject, you know. Uh, realizing um, and, and having that, that heart of peace and gentleness, showing all humility. Uh, again, back in 2 Timothy, turn there just a couple of pages. To, there in chapter 2, verse 24. And it says there in verse 24, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach patience and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so, like our Lord, it's the loving kindness and tender mercies of God that often lead people to repentance. In Colossians, it says, season your words with salt, adding flavor to it, in other words. Being watchful, mindful, wake up, be sober, realizing how to deal with those who are on the outside. So we need to, we need to realize when we are with the world that we, we don't want to complain about how wicked they are. Rather, on the opposite side, we just want to stand firm, uh, displaying the, the Christian virtues that we have by God's Spirit, that fruit of the Spirit, showing the love and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the peace and the self-control. And that is what's going to wake them up to see, wow, what you have, I want, I need. And so remember, remember who we once were you know, so often uh, we, we forget how dark of times it really was when we weren't following the Lord. Um, you know, often somebody will give their testimony. I'm just trying to picture them like that. And it's like, man, you, you seem so pure now. You seem so innocent. You seem so godly. It's, it's hard to imagine you like your past life you're describing. Because God has done such a, a thorough work in their life. Their face doesn't even show the wear and tear of such a life that they spent for 10 years. And so we often can forget ourselves how deep that pit was, how miry that clay we were stuck in really was. And we often need to remember, so we'll have compassion on those who are stuck in that mire of the world. Look, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, looking at those first three verses. He says, In you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once walked, or we once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Boy, that's a pretty good description. 
living a life after our own lust of the flesh, lust of the mind, going with the spirit of this age, rejoicing in all the wickedness they rejoiced in, and laughed about Christianity and people who read their Bible and went to church. And, 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 but now, it's all completely reversed. Now we, we try to imagine not getting together with the, ble- with the brothers and sisters in the Lord. We try to imagine not making it without church. Or we try to imagine not spending time in prayer. Things we once mocked, now we hold as the dearest things to our life. Also, if you'd look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there in verse 9. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Man, that's a pretty heavy list. You know, it's sort of rated R. You know, you've got to be careful not to read this. You know, to too small of children, it's such a heavy list. But then notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. You guys used to be adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and extortioners and drunkards. Some were you. And you were, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Boy, we need to remember how wicked we really were. And how righteous the Lord has made us. But not to forget, unless we forget to have compassion on those who are in the place where we once were, and to show them love and kindness and gentleness and and humility to hopefully take them out of the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And then we see there in Titus, he also gives another list. They were foolish. Boy, do you remember how you used to be foolish? I mean just foolish. Sin can make you that way. Sin in and of itself, it says in Hebrews 2, is deceptive. I think of how deceived Samson was. Remember there? He finally ends up deep into the heart of the Philistine land. And there he hooks up with this gal by the name of Delilah. And she asked him point blank, in Judges 16.6, Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. You know, it's sort of time to end this relationship when they're asking those kind of questions. Not old Samson. Oh, you know, he says, It's a secret. Don't tell anybody. But if I get bound with seven brand new bowstrings, I'm as weak as any other man. The next morning, he wakes up with seven brand new bowstrings around him. What are the odds? (laughs) But he doesn't get out of there. When the Philistines are upon him, he he tears them up, you know, and, and then Delilah gets mad at him. Look, you've mocked me and you told me lies. Now, please tell me, what way may you be bound? And he says to her again, well, you know, I did lie to you, but shh, don't tell anybody, but 
brand new ropes that have never been used. I'm as weak as any man. The next day he wakes up with brand new ropes around him. The foolishness of staying in that relationship. Staying around in that land. But he stays there. And then she really gets upset. She says, please tell me, what is the secret that you may be, a, be bound and, and may be afflicted? And he starts getting a little closer. He says, well, if you take seven uh, locks of my hair and they were weaved into a loom, you know, like you make carpet, you know, you weave through the loom. The next day he wakes up with a loom in his hair. Now, this just does not happen with a restless night's sleep. And then it says she presses him and presses him and presses him until finally he said, oh, woman, you're going to kill me if you don't shut up. And he told her, I have the vow of the Nazarite, and there's already two strikes against me. I've been around the dead, and I've partaken of the, the grape. But if my hair is cut, I'll be like any other man. And she told the Philistines, give me the money. He's told me all his heart. And there she shaved his head. Talking about a deep sleeper. And it says that Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before, as other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. What a foolish man. Staying in a situation that was going to bring him down. But yet his lust after this beautiful woman, his desire to stay in the rut that he was in, he couldn't get out. And his foolish, lustful ways of sinful ways brought him down. King Saul, boy, he was out of his mind. And there towards the end of his life, he, as David could have killed him and didn't, he, he, Solomon, or Saul, out of his own words, says this in 1 Samuel 26, 21, Indeed, I have played the fool. I have erred exceedingly. How many, guys, how many of you guys can say that? Boy, I played the fool. I erred exceedingly. Before I came to Christ, I wish I could say I made some little mistakes. I made huge mistakes. You know, I, I think that's why I'm so motivated to help my kids grow up and not know anything other than to serve the Lord. Because often the scars that the world inflicts upon us and we upon the world, they just never heal, do they? The markings are always there and they stay with us often for a lifetime. Then also it says there that we were disobedient. The Bible also says here that we were deceived that we were serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. And boy, we could go into quite detail into that list of that hateful, bitter life that we once knew, living according to our own lusts and our own sinful pleasures and just full of bitterness and, and hate. I know that's the way I came to the Lord. I was living at the time back in uh, Texas and Arkansas, right there on the border, and my parents had divorced, and we were in a U-Haul truck coming back. Me and my mom, my little sister, my older brother had stayed with my dad there, and my parents were divorcing. And I was laying down on the floorboard of that U-Haul truck. My parents had walked away from the Lord, and about three years we had lived in that scenario. And I just figured it out. <laughs> I was full of so much hate. So much bitterness. And I, I just realized, man, if you live for God, 
You just don't have all of this junk that just destroys your life. And you serve the Lord. Yeah, there's a a cost in, in giving up the things of this world, but there's peace. And I so wanted that peace that I knew as a child. And right there, man, I said, God, I give my all to you. And I really did. And I never turned back. A few months later, uh, the Lord impressed upon my heart that he wanted me to be a pastor. And uh, right then, I started eating up the word of God. But I realized the absolute destruction that can come from that lustful, sinful life full of malice and hate. And then he goes on to say, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared... In John 6, it says, Nobody can come into me unless the Father draws them. At a point in time in your life, the love of God appeared, and it clicked. You understood it. I'm a sinner. I'm despicable. I'm wicked. I'm living a self-centered, a self-consumed life that's in this vacuum that's going to self-destruct. It's destroying myself and others around me. And God loves me. I have no idea why, but I believe it. I really believe that he loves me, and I really believe that he wants to take me to heaven forever. And I really believe that the cross of Christ did it all, that Jesus' blood would take away my sins, that his death and resurrection is the power to set me free. Sometimes people will come up and and say, man, I, I just don't feel like I'm forgiven. And they're Christians. They've been walking with the Lord for a few months. And I'll say, well, why is that? Did you confess your sins? Oh, yeah, I I confess my sins. And then I'll take him to 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'll say, would God ever lie to you? No. Would he tease you? No. No. The reality is, is can you tell me right now somebody that you personally know or in the Guinness World Book of Records who has been dead for three days and rose again? No. You ever seen it? No. Do you know anybody that's ever seen it? No. Do you expect to see it this week? No. But yet, do you believe 2,000 years ago that Jesus died and rose again? Yes, I do. Think about that. That's faith. You believe in your heart that God sent his only son who died and rose again, and you really believe it. That's faith. God's put that in your heart. Now take that same faith and believe that if you die and raise again, that he'll also forgive you of your sins. And God's far kinder than we can ever imagine, far more loving than we can ever, in this lifetime, ever absorb. But he said it happened not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Now this can sort of get you in a catch-22. Because we realize it's by grace that we're saved. It's a gift of God. It's not of our works. But what we can do is we can start getting into this thing that as we're living for the Lord, we sort of start saying, hey, I'm doing pretty good obedient-wise. God bless me for that. And we don't understand that God's grace is upon us even when we're the prodigals in the pig pen. God's love for us is the same. And that God is blessing us 
not because of all the things that we do. Now, there is a blessing in doing all the things right. I'm not going to say there's not. Whatever a man sows, that is what he reaps. But that is not God's motive in blessing you. I mean, if I go and work out this week, I'm going to be in better shape. I'm going to reap what I've sown. If I go eat a dozen donuts every day, I'm going to look like the Pillbury Doughboy. I'm, I'm, it's going to happen in the same way in the spiritual realm. If I seek God in the Word every day, I'm going to have a knowledge of God's Word. God's going to be able to speak to my heart. But God is not saying, oh, you got 10,000 brownie points this week, and that means you can have a prayer answered. What do you want? You know, It's not the way it works. God is blessing me because he loves me. And this is what we need to understand. It's not by the works of righteousness which we have done that we are saved. But according to his mercy, he has saved us through the washing and the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 2 it says, And as you were saved, so walk in him. It's the same exact principle that you were saved in that now as a Christian we walk in. We weren't saved by our righteous works. Sometimes people will say, I'll come back and receive the Lord in a couple of weeks. But in their mind, I'm going to go and start living as good as life as I can. And then I'm going to come back saying, okay, now I feel better about asking God to forgive me because I've cleaned up my life. It doesn't work that way, does it? You've got to come by faith. The dirt, the gunk, the monk, the whole nine yards. Just come with all your filth and say, God, I believe you to forgive me of all my wickedness, not by the works we have done, but by his mercy. Remember the thief on the cross? He had been mocking the Lord on the way to Golgotha. He mocked the Lord when he himself was hanging on a cross. Boy, I'll tell you, people who are heading towards the electric chair, if you would, heading towards their death sentence, often even the most wicked people get religious in a hurry. Even some of the most Toughest guys become little sissies because they realize, I'm dying, I'm going to be out of this body. But these guys were hardened criminals. Even after they were strapped to a cross, they were still mocking the Lord. But finally he woke up and he looked on Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's it say in Romans 10? If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. Lord Jesus, when you come into your what? Kingdom. He believed he was Lord. When? Not if. He believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. And Jesus could say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Think of this. This guy was wicked even on the cross. But here he is now. His hands are tied to the cross. His feet are tied to the cross. This guy can do nothing to earn salvation. Yet he is going to share the same heaven with you and me who have struggled to live for the Lord and to read the Bible and to be a witness and to live a holy life. But hopefully we're doing all of that, not works of righteousness to try to gain God's approval, but works of righteousness to just love him, to bless him, because you truly are thankful for all that he's done for you. And so again, it's by that working of the Holy Spirit who's Cause us to be born again through the wash and the regeneration. All the old things have passed away. All things have become new within our spirit. And then it says in verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly 
through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's what you discover throughout the scriptures. Whether it's forgiveness, whether it's mercy, whether it's love, God doesn't scrape the bottom of the barrel and give you the leftovers. God just pours out abundantly upon you. Whatever it is you need, mercy or love or forgiveness or kindness or understanding, God will just pour it upon you. And then it says abundantly. Jesus says in John 10, Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy that thief. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. How do we have that abundant life? By walking by faith and receiving all of God's grace, all of God's mercy. That's how you walk in that abundant life. I mean, I try to live an obedient life every day. But sometimes I blow it from almost the moment I wake up until the moment I go to bed. But I, when it comes time to pray, I don't say, God, I have no right to ask you anything. Just forgive me. Amen. I'm going to sleep. I start asking for all kinds of things. Because I know I'm never coming to ask God to answer my prayers because of my goodness or my righteousness. I'm coming and asking based upon his goodness, his mercy, his love, his kindness. And that's how you live in that abundant life. Leaning upon by faith, his nature and his goodness. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Man, to understand all that justified means. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me if you would. Romans chapter 8, starting there in verse 29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. For whom he's predestined, these he's also called. Whom he's called, these he's also justified, just as if you have never sinned. Whom he's justified, these he's also glorified. That's our status in heaven, guys. In Ephesians 2, it says he's already seen us seated together with him in heavenly places. And so here he makes it clear that if he has justified you, he's already seen you in heaven in a glorified condition. What shall we say to these things? I say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, Merry Christmas, all those things. Yeah, I have a lot of things to say. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. There is no higher court. It's the Supreme Court, Supreme Court. And if God says you're innocent, who can then, what, what court of appeal is there? that could say you're guilty. There is none. It's God who himself justified you, and then he proclaimed you, declared you justified. So who is he who condemns? Sometimes you condemn yourself because you don't have enough faith. Sometimes others condemn you because they don't see the work that God's doing in your life. Often, Satan condemns you because he wants you to feel condemned. He doesn't want you to be fruitful. There's a lot of people who condemn you and most, I think our worst enemy often is ourself. But it's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, I love this, who also makes intercessions for us. Boy, justification encompasses all of that. And in Hebrews 7.25 it says he ever lives to make intercessions for us. We 
are justified, we have an equal share in the inheritance with Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 8. Look back at verse 16, if you would. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs of God, joint heirs, are equal heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, we may also be glorified together. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy of compared with the glory which shall be revealed where? In us. We are equal shares with Christ himself. God has made it so. Jesus has desired it. Jesus in his prayer in John 17 said, Father, as you are in me and I in them, that they may be in us and we in them in a perfect unity. Father, where I go, they may come with me and there be with me. The Lord said, I want to share with you my inheritance. Boy, what an abundance. What an incredible gift the Lord has given us within justification. And then we have that confidence. The word hope here is really not the same word we use in English. Oh, I hope so. No, it's a confidence. That's our confidence then that we have eternal life. And in verse 8, back in Titus there, chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. So to constantly say these things time and time again, whenever the opportunity makes its way, to affirm these things. A brother came up this morning and said, Man, I, I, I don't feel like I'm living the Christian life throughout the week. And Well, have you confessed your sins? Yes, I have. And let me read this verse. Affirm these things constantly. You know, we need to affirm one another. I often find when people think they're doing poorly that they're not doing as bad as they really think they're doing. But I've often thought when, I've, I often think when people think themselves to be doing great, they're not doing so great as they think they are either. But we need to affirm, give affirmation to one another. We need to see those things that are genuine, not flattery, but to point them out and then encourage them on it. So if you see somebody encouraging people with the Scripture, let them know, you know what? You're the kind of guy that encourages people with Scriptures, and I want you to know that that is so helpful in this body of Christ. Or if people often are helping people, man, do you realize how helpful you are? You have the gift of helps, and you really are an important, integral part of this body because of your gifts of help. We need to look and affirm one another constantly. Satan doesn't take an advantage by condemning us and putting us down to affirm one another that those who believe in God also should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Look, if you would, chapter 1 there of Titus, verse 16. What does he say? In chapter 1 there, verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but in the works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Look at Titus chapter 2 there, verse 6 and 7. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourselves to be a pattern of good works. Look at Titus chapter 2 there, verse uh, 14. 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself his own special people. Look, zealous for good works. And then in Titus chapter 3, there, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be ready for every good work. And there, uh, in verse 8, he tells us to learn to maintain good works. And then one more time, he's going to tell us in verse 14, or to be careful to maintain good works. And then in verse 14, he says, And let all our people also learn to maintain good works. He says those who are, not, who are walking in disobedience are disqualified for every good work. But then he says in, in chapter 2, verse 7, to be a pattern of good works. In chapter 2, verse 14, to be zealous for good works. In chapter 3, verse 1, to be ready for every good work. And here he says in verse 8, to be careful to maintain good works. And then in verse 14, he's going to say to learn to maintain good works. Boy, we need to understand that as believers, God has created us in Christ Jesus, he says in Ephesians 2.10, for good works. Again, you've got to be careful not to get the cart before the horse. We are not doing good works that we might be good. God has made us good. He has made us righteous by the regeneration, the working of His Spirit. Therefore, we are good. Therefore, we do good works. And so true saving faith works. And it works in many ways, in a practical way. Hold your finger here in Titus and turn to James chapter 2 if you would. James chapter 2. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says, Depart, be in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus your faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, it's not a real saving faith. Now, in verse 18 there of James 2, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. Do you not want to, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So there were people saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. Now, when you look at historic Christianity, they saw faith working in three different levels. They first had what was called phyta historia, which means uh, uh, historical faith, if you would, faith of fact. Now, does it take faith to believe Jesus Christ walked the face of this earth? No, it doesn't. 
Not a saving faith. I mean, it's a historical fact. As a matter of fact, if you believe that Abraham Lincoln was the President of the United States, well, you'll definitely believe Jesus Christ was a carpenter in Nazareth and that he claimed himself to be God because there's far more historical uh, works written upon Jesus Christ than any other man that's ever walked the face of the earth. And so if that's the case, well, then the demons are saved because they believe in God. They used to live in heaven with him. But then there is the second step, which was called the census, which means there is an emotional response. And this is where we see the demons. They have an emotional response. They hear the name of Jesus and they tremble. And so there's people that say, oh, I'm a believer in Jesus. And I believe they are. Historically, they believe the, the, the facts of Christianity and they accept them to be true. But that doesn't mean you're saved. Then there's others that they have an emotional appeal. They'll go to the Christmas service and say, oh, it's wonderful, and Christianity is such a wonderful thing, but they're not a follower of God the rest of the year. They go to Easter service and they say, oh, I believe in the resurrection, but they're not a follower of God and truth, but yet they truly do weep at the Christmas Eve service. They truly do have an emotional response at the name of Jesus. And, you know, an amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Oh, they can't help but to weep because they remember their grandmother's funeral and how sweet it was or whatever. They have an emotional response. But that doesn't mean they're saved. And then there's the third step, which is called fiducia, which is uh, the Latin word for faith, which, which means it's a true saving faith. And it gives the concept of volitionally with your will, there's a surrender. If you were to go to, next to a guy who's smoking and say, do you know smoking causes cancer? He would pull out a pack of cigarettes and say, yep, that's what the Surgeon General says right here. Smoking will cause cancer. Sure, I believe that's true. Then if you ask him, do you believe it can cause you to have cancer? Yes, I believe it probably will. I just spent two months in the hospital with my dad as he was, you know, sucking a cigarette through the hole in his throat and coughing up blood, and he, he, he died of, of lung cancer and emphysema, and it was, it was horrible, and he begins to weep. Yeah, I'm, I know, I'm going to put my kids through the same thing. But let me ask you, just because he historically knows, is it going to cause cancer, is he going to quit smoking? Just because he had this emotional experience with the truth, that smoking cause cancer, is he going to quit smoking? No. But when there is something in the will of the man that he says, I will no longer smoke, and he takes his pack of cigarettes and crumbles it up and goes, takes his $300 worth of cigarettes and throws it away, and he goes down and sees the doctor and, and says, what do I need to do to get off? And he starts, there's a point in his heart where his will changes and he surrenders to the reality, I will no longer be a smoker. Now, I'm not saying he's not going to struggle and he might not go into lapses of smoking and get, you know, he might not falter. But there's a point where he wills, volitionally with his soul, he wills to become a non-smoker. In the same way, the, it, it, a person is not truly saved till he in his will surrenders himself in truth to God who says, Lord, you have control of my entire being. Every second, every moment, my entire life is yours. And at that point, 
the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the person, and at that point they get a hunger for the Word, they get a desire to seek God, and now with their will, God has genuinely His Spirit hooking up with their spirit, His will now accompanying their will, gives them the strength, gives them the power, gives them the grace to live the Christian life. And they serve the body of Christ, they serve the Lord by seeking Him in the Word and prayer, willingly, because God has truly changed them. And it's not a fact that has to be persuaded with words. It's a fact that will be persuaded because of their life's change. If you say, man, I just bought a brand new car, and you come cruising up on your bicycle, and I'll say, really, where is it? Oh, I parked it back at my house. Well, let's go see it. No, it's all locked up. My mom is the only one who has the key, and now we can't see it right now. It's getting late anyway. Two weeks later, you're telling somebody about this wonderful car you bought, and as you get on your bicycle to go home, I'll say, hey, where is this car? Well, you know, it's in the shop, getting a new spoiler put on it and, and so forth. And after about six months, still not seeing that car, we are in great doubt whether you really did buy a new car or not. In the same way, when a person gives their life to the Lord, you will begin to see the good works that are works that mark them, set them apart, the works that only a Christian can do because of the agape love in their heart that of forgiveness, that of kindness, that of love, that of sharing their faith. They are by nature. It says you are a light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. It doesn't say try to be a light or try to be more salty. It says by nature. By nature, if you had a big giant hunk of salt, by nature it is salty. You don't have to add anything to it. You can make a big block of it. You could chop it up into little tiny granules. Any way, shape, or form, you mess with that salt. You are going to end up with salt on your hands. You're going to end up with salt on, on whatever you touch. And whatever it touches, it's going to change the nature of it. If it's salt on iron, it's going to start rusting it. If it's salt on your hand and you've got a sore, it's going to start singing it. It's going to affect it. By nature, it's salt. By nature, you are salt. By nature, you're going to start stinging some people, bringing flavor to other people, bring preservation to some people, bring thirst to other people. By nature, you are going to start affecting others. True faith has works with it. It's like trying to hide a, a city set on a hill. You can't hide it. The light shines. You can't shine who you really are. You were blind and now you see, and you can't stop talking about it. If real faith has happened to you, there are works in your life. Now, as a believer, we're going to be attacked by Satan. As a believer, we're going to be attacked with temptation and trials and disappointment and depression and, and hardship. And we're going to go through valleys. And in those valleys, like it says here in Titus, we need to remember to continue on our good works. We need to remember to learn to do more good works. And he tells us in Revelations 2, that if you find yourself losing that love in the Lord, remember the works you did accidentally back in your romantic days of when you first came to Christ, and just start repeating them. And you'll find that your heart catches up with you. It's true. 
If you feel, you feel like you've fallen out of love with your wife or your husband, just, what did you do? Well, I used to buy him flowers. Go buy him flowers. What did you used to do? I used to, couldn't wait to get home, and I'd run into the kitchen and gather him a big hug and, and tell him I loved him. Do it again. You'll find that if you'll do those works, your heart will change, whether it's towards another person or towards God. And so remember those good works. Maintain those good works. There's some times where we're barely making it in life, aren't we? And we just sort of got to say, I can't really advance at this point, but I don't want to start coasting downhill, so I want to maintain the position that I have right now. Maintain where you're at. People will sometimes come in and say, man, I just got to take a break for a while. It's like, yeah, who doesn't, you know? Let's just all, you know, Lord, come quickly. Rapture us out of here. I'm ready. Life doesn't work that way. But if I take a break from teaching Sunday school, I'll, I'll be so much better. And then you see their life just starting to go downhill. Because what do they do at that time? <laughs> they don't fill it in with reading the Bible. Often, it's those good works that keep us on track. I've had Sunday school teachers tell me on numbers of occasions, if it wasn't having to prepare for the Sunday school lesson, I don't know if I would have made it in the Word this week at all. There's those times where the pressures of life, the difficulties come against us, and it is those good works. I've got to show up because I'm opening the door for the prayer meeting, and I've got to show up and lead worship. I've got to show up and teach Sunday. It's those very good works that we're working now. It's not a, a, a joyful thing at this moment because of the trial or the valley we're going through, but I'm working at maintaining those good works, and as I work at them and I learn how to continue in those good works, they're the very things that are going to protect us in those hard times. And this is why he's saying it over and over again. Be careful to maintain them. Be careful to continue to grow in them. Be careful to learn how to do more and how to learn to continue to maintain those good works. And then back in Titus verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they're unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped, sinning, and self-condemned. You know, you realize that there's actually a little percentage that you hear as you go to pastor's conferences and Sunday school workshop conferences and, and leadership conferences. It's, it's called the, the 1090 rule or the 2080 rule, depending on who's speaking. But it's, they talk about how 10% of the people eat up 100% of your time. And that can happen. But the Bible teaches us that we are not to focus on the carnal. Tonight here, I'm not catering to the carnal. I'm catering to those who really want to grow in the Lord. But yet there's some times where the carnal person is, is wanting, at least they seem to want to grow in the Lord, and yet when you give them definite things to do, they don't seem to be able to do it. They don't seem to be able to follow through with it. And in reality, they end up wasting your time. Look, if you would, over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. You see how this worked? I end up teaching two books of the Bible in one night. 2 Timothy there, chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Therefore I endure all things, for what? The sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation 
which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. And then turn over to Acts chapter 13, if you would. Acts chapter 13. Paul there is preaching, and the Jews begin to come against him because they're jealous of his popularity. And he says, fine, I'm going to shake off the dust from you guys, and I'm going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. The gospel must first come to the Jews, but after that, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he goes on to say there, um, it was necessary, he says in, in verse 46 of Acts 13, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, look, believed. Paul understood that this mystery, that all need to hear the gospel because as a, he says in Second or in First Timothy, God wishes all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But when Paul was laboring, he was laboring for the elect. He was laboring for those who would believe. And in our counseling here with our leaders, I, I teach them, when people come for counseling, to give them something to have to do. Read your Bible every day or read these verses and, and give me your commentary on them. Not something that's definitely difficult, but a definite something. And if they don't do their homework, so to speak, we don't give them a second counseling appointment. Why? Because if they can't spend time with the Lord, spending time with me is not going to help. If they aren't they, if they can't get into the Word and hear from God, do you think I have something to say in the hour spending with me that's going to do you any good? As pastors, as leaders, we're just traffic cops. You're stuck at this intersection? It's that way to Jesus. Go that way and follow the Lord. But I tell our leaders very clearly, don't get sidetracked with carnal people. If they're not hungry for the Word... Don't waste your time with them. Now that may sound brutal, but the reality is, is they, if they're not going to press in on the Lord, they're just going to start dragging you down. It says in First Timothy, or in Second Timothy, it says, "Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and hope with those who will call on the Lord out of a pure heart." And that's where, as believers, we need to get. And so, those who are just wanting to have carnal, foolish discussions, whether they're religious or non-religious. Uh, you know, the Mormons are all into genealogies or, you know, the Catholics are all into their saints and who the Pope is and, and was Peter the first Pope. And, all. you know, I'm not going to get off into that. I remember last year we had just an incredible time, or the year before I think it was, an incredible time in our New Year's Eve service. I, I gave a message on, on uh, the signs of the time and and afterwards, there were so many people that got saved, and I was meeting a lot of these new believers. I was just in hog heaven, man, just, just enjoying it. And there was a, a group of about five guys that wanted to debate with me whether there really was a rapture or not. And I said, get out of here. And I told Wes to get him away because I was this close from punching him out. You know, this is so foolish, 
Here you guys are. You don't even go to our church, and, and you have nothing better to do on a New Year's Eve than to come and antagonize us in a time of celebration. They would call us fellow Christians, but because we're off on our end times, you know, teaching, according to them, it's like, get away from me. I, I'm not going to waste my time in an unprofitable discussion that's not, you're not here to, to learn or to grow or to ask. You're here to debate with me uh, about what I just preached on. But there are people within the church that are not willing to listen to sound doctrine because they themselves don't have the Spirit of God in them. And after the second time, they call themselves a Christian, but after that second admonition, now that's radical. Think about that, guys. This isn't the three strikes rule. This is the second strike rule. You talk to them once, and, and now they've gone from sort of speculating to asking other people, getting them detoured, and now they're becoming aggressive. They're a wolf now. They've passed the line from being inquisitive to now hindering others in their growth, and he makes it clear, get, kick that person out of church. Get away. They are warped. Uh, that word means perverted, or literally they're twisted. There's something that's not right in their spirit or in their mind, and they're not capable of listening or learning or growing because they are self-condemned or they're self-willed. Because of their self-will, the pride of their heart has taken over, they are not in a position where they're going to be able to listen or receive, and no matter how many hours you spend, no matter how many books you give them, no matter how many arguments you make to persuade them, they're listening through it all through a, a twisted mind, a twisted heart, and they're not going to be able to take in. And all they're going to be is a cancer on the body of Christ. And they need to be excommunicated, kicked out. They are themselves self-condemned. And then we see again uh, Paul here at the end giving a personal touch to this letter. He says, When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, that's a, a beautiful place there right across the coast from uh, Italy, right on the um, Adriatic Sea. I was actually there this summer, just a few miles from there. I went as far down as Spit. But uh, anyway, it's beautiful up there. And uh, so he says, come to me. I'm in a very sweet vacation spot. I, I don't know. It was it's pretty nice there. But I've decided to spend the winter there, and it would be a very nice winter place to spend uh, on the coast there. And then he says, send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. So this guy Artemis and this guy Zenos, we know nothing about other than this right here. Paul evidently wanting some kind of legal counsel and wanting a brother to help him out. And so he was going to come down and do that. Probably had offered that somewhere along the line and said, grab him, I need him now. Um, Tychicus, we know quite a bit about him. In Ephesians 6, verse 21, and Colossians 4, verse 7 through 9, Paul calls him a fellow, a servant, a faithful servant, who is one of the leaders in the church. And of course, Apollos, uh, he was a great, uh, eloquent uh, speaker. Uh, you can read about him in Acts chapter 18. Aquila and Priscilla brought him and took him aside and taught him more sound doctrine. And he ended up becoming a, a great, effective leader in the church. And he says, help these guys on their journey. Remember, Crete was an island. It was a stopover place uh, to many different locations. And so most likely they were going to be stopping in there, getting another ship, and going on their journey. And he's saying, when they come to you, help them out with anything they need. Give them a place to stay uh, and, and give them warm greetings. They're from me. 
no doubt there's a lot of people that came and said we're from Paul and then had heresy and, and caused division and difficulty in the church. And he's saying, you can trust these guys. I'm, I'm giving you. You may not be familiar with them, Titus, but Artemis and, and Zenos uh, are a couple guys that, that you don't know, but you can count on them. And, of course, Tychicus and Apollos, he would have known. And, uh, and then he says in verse 14, And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. So he ends up saying, let them have this heart diligent right this very moment to meet those needs. And on top of that, um, help them to learn at least not to be unfruitful. <laughs> He's at this point not so confident they can be real fruitful, but to help them not to go backwards, but at least maintain uh, the good works they've come to at this point. Stop the, the downhill progress of this church. Grab it by the horns and start going forward to help them to learn to be the godly people they need to be. And all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace with you all. And to all of you here at Calvary Chapel San, Day, San Diego tonight, grace also be with you. And everybody said... Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And we do ask in Jesus' name that we would be those people so appreciative of the grace, the love, the kindness that you've showed towards us, the wonderful righteousness you've given us, not by our works, but by a gift. We thank you for the abundance you've poured out upon us, lavished upon us, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the love, all the kindness, all the goodness that you've blessed us with. How we are so very, very, very thankful, Lord. And we rejoice in you here tonight, Lord. And Lord, we understand that we need to, as believers, maintain our good works. And the good work we're focused on here tonight is that of prayer. And we've learned, Lord, here tonight, not just for our own community, but to pray for all those in authority that come to our heart, our mind, in that place of prayer to ask your special anointing and power to fall upon them, to convict them of sin, or to help them stand firm in the midst of the flow of a wicked and perverse generation that they're trying to be leaders in. Lord, we know it's your desire that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And with that in mind, Lord, we want to pray for all men. So help us, Lord, to maintain the good works of prayer, to maintain a heart fervent, zealous for good works, ready for good works, prepared for good works, to learn to maintain those good works. Lord, we know that you have made us a people, that you desire for us to be a people after your own heart. So we come before you tonight, Lord, and ask by the power of your Spirit that you would do that very thing. We ask your kingdom to come and your will to be done here in the midst of us tonight. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I went much longer than I normally go, and that's got to be real long because I always go long. And uh, so if you have kids and you plan on not staying here tonight, if you would quickly go and grab the kids before they start abusing them. And... Uh, <laughs>